0: Hello and welcome to Season 13, Episode 6 of the Scene from Above podcast, which aims to showcase the latest and greatest in remote sensing and geosciences while keeping inclusivity at the forefront. This season of Scene from Above is brought to you by UP42 and GeoWarsetness. I'm Gopika and I'm joined by Flavia and Morgan, and we'll be your hosts for this episode. Hey,
1: how is everyone today? Hello, Gopika. I'm fine. Very excited for my holidays in the end of the week, so only good things going to happen
2: and hello um, it's Morgan yeah I'm fine I'm uh, <laughs> enjoying some more snow in Canada and I love looking at the satellite images this time of year where it's all white basically in Ottawa well speaking of news and all the good things that's happening around us um, I think it's time for Rafaela to tell us the
3: latest and the greatest hi girls thank you and let's go to the news Sentinel-2 Land Cover Explorer, a new web-based mapping application. Generating this information is foundational, and Sentinel-2 Land Cover Explorer will be invaluable for helping decision-makers unlock critical insights about land use. With this new web-based mapping information, it's possible to access timely maps, Change Analysis, Visual Changes Analysis, Statistical Change Analysis, Visual Validation and more. Worth a look. The link will be in the description of this episode. And now, some news for our volcanologist listeners. ESA's Wind Mission helps to investigate the nature of volcanic plums. Scientists used this data and sent 5B information to reveal a stratospheric mass of sulfur dioxide and other volcanic emissions that circled the globe three times. If you would like to know more about it, you can find the Scientific Reports link in the description of this episode. On February 27, the USGS and NASA a Trapped Electrical Currents in the Landsat 9 Thermal Infrared Sensor Landsat 9 Collection 2 Level 1 Product Processing was immediately paused to allow the team to investigate and determine the cause. It's important to mention that the Landsat 9 Operational Land Imager Sensor was not affected by this anomaly. ESA Biomass Satellite will be launched in 2024 After months of successful testing, it is announced that this new Earth Explorer mission is a few steps closer to its mission. This mission will deliver completely new information on global forest biomass. This not only includes the trunk of the tree, but also its bark and branches. The biomass satellite will be launched in 2024 and will be definitely a game changer.
2: Thanks, Raphael. that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the
0: biomass mission. It's a P-band SAR sensor, and it'll be able to give us so much information about the forest composition, biomass, forest structure, all of that. And this is exactly what I need in my new job, so I'm really looking forward to all of that wonderful data. And for all of you all who are going to Poland's 2023, you'll hear a lot about the biomass mission, so please tweet about it so all of us get to know the latest news there.
2: Now, shifting gears, we're going to go over to our interview segment. We get to listen in on an amazing conversation that Gopika and Flavia had with Dr. Lola Fatoyimbo from NASA.
0: So... In today's interview segment, we are joined by Dr. Lola Fatoyimbo, who is a research scientist in the Biospheric Sciences Lab at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, where she studies forest ecology and ecosystem structure using remote sensing. She serves on the JEDI and ISAT-2 mission science teams and is principal investigator on NASA Earth Science Research. She has a doctorate in environmental sciences with a focus on forest ecology and remote sensing of mangrove wetlands. She's been a NASA postdoc program fellow at the Radar Science and Engineering section at Caltech JPL, where she focused on quantifying forest extent, height and biomass through the development of multi-sensor fusion algorithms. She's a force to be reckoned with, and we're so grateful to have you here, Lola.
1: We'll get right into the questions. Flavia, over to you. So Lola, could you tell us about what your research focuses on at NASA Goddard and how you work with multi-sensors to better understand coastal ecosystem?
4: Sure. So my research is really focused on using different Earth observing data to better understand forest and coastal wetland ecosystems. And I, in particular, work on carbon cycling and monitoring and trying to predict the effects of land use change and climate change on these ecosystems and then also understanding what the implications are for biodiversity and ecosystem services. Um, I work primarily with passive optical data and SAR and LIDAR, and really what I'm interested in is trying to map these systems, what I call in 3D in 3 in 3D and sometimes in 4D. So three dimensions and then adding time, which is the fourth dimension. So I'm really interested in, in understanding the um, canopy structure and height and, and then biomass and carbon stocks, in particular of mangrove ecosystems, and then also how they change over time.
0: Are you doing this globally or is there one particular place or a few places that you're looking at?
4: So both, um, we, so I've worked on global data sets. I'm doing, I have some studies that are global, really with a global focus. And then um, I also have some projects that are really focused maybe on a specific region, I work a lot in West Africa and in East Africa is where actually most of my kind of more regionally focused work has been, and then also some in in Asia and in Latin America.
0: So if we're looking for a mangrove data set in West Africa and East Africa, then we know whom to contact.
4: Yes, you can contact (laughs) me. I can find you or make what you need.
0: In 4D even. (laughs) I'll try, yes.
4: (laughs) That's the goal. That's the ultimate end goal. And then trying to predict it too, but... You know that that's really challenging.
0: So already now you've mentioned that you work with passive uh, sensors, you work with LIDAR and you work with SAR. So I know that uh, you started off your journey with biology and what inspired yeah. you to get into EO?
4: The main thing is I, I kind of ended up here by chance. I didn't know necessarily that my career existed or that a job like the one that I have right now existed. In fact, I didn't know this at all. Um, I always knew I wanted to study plants, environment, and explore. Um, And so it seemed like biology was the most logical thing to do. Um, And then when I was at university, I ended up taking some courses that were um, offered both through biology and environmental science. And I realized, oh, actually, maybe environmental science is more what I should be doing. Um, And I ended up going to a um, team meeting, the biodiversity team meeting, a NASA biodiversity team meeting with my advisor and some other graduate students, and that's when I met my first NASA scientist, and I realized, oh, someone like me who's interested in doing the type of work that I do, both does field work but also wants to look at things from kind of a larger scale. This is this is the career for me.
0: Who did you meet, if I may ask?
4: Um, I met um, Sasan Sachi and Mark Samard, um, and. Both of those two, meeting them, too, was like really pivotal, I think, in my career. And then I also met Woody Turner, who was the um, program scientist for the Biological Diversity program. I always tell him that meeting changed my life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that.
0: That's the importance of uh, meeting inspiring people and hearing stories from different people in the field. You don't know when you'll get inspired and what will actually trigger you.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I had just come back from doing two months of field work, um, and my site was in Mozambique. It's it was a great site. I loved doing field work, uh, but it was really far and it was kind of long. And so then when I came back, and um, Mark had just published a map of mangrove canopy height and biomass for the Florida Everglades, and I thought, oh my gosh, can I please do this for my site in Mozambique? What do you need? He said, well, you know you have some field data maybe we can try to do it and that that's that's how i started
1: and now that you were talking about like field work collecting data you have working with multispectral lidar SAR, satellite airborne sensors and what would you say are the advantage of working with this variety of sensors and and to maybe explain us a little bit more about how can you use LIDAR, for example, to extract these forest metrics such as height, DBH, and in order to estimate carbon, and how do you do that with mangroves, for example, because it's a very challenging kind of a type of vegetation, right? So could you tell us a little bit more?
4: Sure, so um, to answer your question on on how you, you would do this with mangroves to estimate the height and extract the carbon, um, in some ways it's challenge, it's more challenging in a mangrove, and in other ways it might be more simple. Um, and and that's why actually when I when I first started, I was working with um, data from SRTM, the Shuttle Radar Topography Mission, which gives us an estimate of uh, elevation and also the height of the trees on top of the ground. And so it was actually a data set that works really well in mangroves because they are always growing in flat areas. You don't really have to worry about the topography in the same way that you would worry in, you know, any other types of forest where there might be changes in topography. Um, And so that's actually how we were able to produce um, first, you know, we started, Mark started in, um, in Florida and then we moved to Mozambique and then we ended up producing a global data set of mangrove canopy height. Um, because we could use this SRTM data to do that. Um, if you're using airborne LIDAR, for example, it's very similar to working in a tropical forest you, or, you know, in any other type of forest, except, you know, maybe the species are different. You do also have to take into account lots of roots, above ground roots, and, and there might be water. So I think it's kind of the case with any ecosystem or data set that you're working with. It's better to have a good idea of what it is that you're, working with and, and where you're working. Um, you know, it's if you have some type of understanding of what you're seeing on the ground, it will help you to better understand and um, evaluate your your earth observing or remotely sensed data as well.
0: Do you have to then go very often on field work to go and verify, validate your results?
4: I used to more than I do now. I feel like at the beginning when You know, I've been now doing remote sensing for many, many years. Um, When we first started, it was still, you know, the question of does this actually work? Can we actually, you know, use this to measure canopy height or to map change? And so we had to do a lot more field validation and collect a lot of training data. I think um, now, first of all, there is so much training data. There's so much history. And existing studies and analysis of the pros and cons and the sensitivity of data that you know we still do need field validation, but it can be much more targeted than before.
0: And coming back to the point that you made about training data, do you also um, make any of your data sets available for free for other people to use? I see you
4: know it. Yes, we try. I I tried to make all of the data available. Um, In fact, I mandated to make my data available and available for free. So uh, once it's published, um, the data should be available through one of the NASA data archives or um, an online archive um, where people can go and download it. And now um, that there are so many different ways of actually sharing your data, either through, you know, web platforms or, um, you know, you can share your code. That's also really useful that you can also just share code with people and then they can reproduce their own data or make apps that allow people to actually visualize the data and reproduce it. I think that's really useful and important and also helps with, um, you know, clarifying what it is exactly that you're doing.
0: That's awesome. Now, you've got accolades of awards, and uh, one of them is the Presidential Early Career Award in Science and Engineering. Um, Could you tell us um, more about the work you did for that? Sure. So
4: when I got that award, I had just started working at Goddard. I think I'd just been there for two years. Um, And... I was working on an instrument, on on developing a new instrument called the ECOSAR, which was an interferometric P-band SAR sensor that was airborne. And so it was my first time working with an engineering team and actually um, working on developing a new instrument. And it was really important for me to develop something that would have some type of use, some type of application um, for science also for, you know, other types of application, whether it's management or, or other type of monitoring. And yeah, so, you know, I think I did a really good job at, um, at working on this instrument developing, we had a great team and also providing the justification as to why it was important and what the applications would be. And uh, yeah, so through that, I got the award. It it was it was a a big, big surprise. In fact, when they contacted me first, the first few times that they sent an email, I didn't actually believe that it was a real email. So I didn't answer. Uh, and then my program manager had to uh, kind of call me up. I was also on maternity leave at the time, and I said, Oh, this is just spam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm called, you know, I get an email. It's like, The White House would like to have your information just in case. And I was like, This is theater just really? trying to get my social security <laughs> number. I'm not giving you this.
0: <laughs> but you truly deserved it. And um, have they used any of the ideas from the P band sensor from EcoSoft and ISOC?
4: Yes, I think there's a lot of technologies that have that have been used that came out of that that instrument. we We flew it also a few times. We flew to the Bahamas and Costa Rica. And then different parts of of the instrument were then used for of the design and the instrument um, have been used to design new instruments and and um, participated in new campaigns. So um Goddard has another instrument that is actually more focused on snow. Mm-hmm. Um, that is using the processor that came out of um, c- that came out of Ecosar, for example. And a lot of the work that we did, you know, trying to find applications and uses for the instrument and and the data, you know, i'm still I'm still using now and still working with. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, um, you know when you when you work at NASA and you and and you start learning about the different aspects. You know, there's of course the science, and I'm in Earth science, but then there's the whole exploration and technology development. And we talk a lot about how you know you start with one idea and you develop one instrument, but then actually there are so many parts in that development that you know there's so many. Um, you know other benefits that come out of developing one instrument that have sometimes nothing to do with the you know end goal of what you're actually proposing, um, and I think I think that there were many coming out of this particular project.
0: Yeah, uh, a lot of our listeners are not SAR people, so could you tell them mm-hmm. what the difference or what the benefits of using using a P-band sensor would be?
4: Sure. So one of the reasons why I really like to work with um, SAR data is that it is what we call weather independent. So it essentially is able to see through clouds um, and it doesn't get affected by rain and you can collect data uh, during the day or at night. And so when you're working in the tropics, for example, or areas that might have, um, you know, a lot of uh, very strong different types of weather, it's really useful because you can actually, um, you don't really have to take into account all of these, what's happening in the atmosphere and clouds and things like that. Um, And then when we're working with P-Bansar, for example, um, this is really useful because it allows us to even kind of, if you're looking at something on the ground, let's say a forest, um, you can in some ways almost see through the forest and see what's underneath. Um, kind of the leaves and the vegetation, you're really only getting signal back from big things like a big trunk or um yeah, a big trunk or a really dense canopy. So if there's water, for example, underneath a tropical forest, a dense forest, if you're looking at a an optical image. So what we're used to seeing, like a, a picture, you know, you just see what's on top, you just see the vegetation, or you just see like green basically from the canopy, but with a SAR data set, especially something like a P Band SAR, you would actually see through the canopy and you can see what's underneath it if you're looking for water,
0: for example. Does that do a good job at explaining you think? Yes, that's brilliant. Thank you. I work a lot with ocean SAR images. So there actually we do see weather phenomena because of the interaction between wind and rain cells and storms, etc. with the ocean surface. But yeah, um, that's radar remote sensing in a nutshell for everybody.
1: Yeah, I actually am very interested about this mangrove mangrove data set that you produce, right? So I think uh, there are a lot of our listeners here who also work with carbon in forests. And I think sometimes people don't understand the difference between like how much stocks can how much carbon, for example, can a mangrove stocks or can a rainforest stocks? because people sometimes think that in the Amazon, like the rainforest, you stock everything, you have the highest amount, and so on if you have like a huge rainforest. So I'm very curious to understand a bit more about these differences in like carbon stocking, mangrovers or rainforests. And, and in the context of this mangrove that I said that you produce with all these very interesting instruments and, and metals that you created around.
4: The main difference, I would say, I think, between mangroves and rainforests, if you're looking on a carbon perspective, is that um, mangroves, because they grow in water, um, they actually have really, really hard wood. And so that wood has a higher density, and just because of that, if you take a typical mangrove tree and you compare it to a typical, you know, non-mangrove tree or, you know, rainforest or other tree, it's just heavier because basically the tree is made in such a way that it doesn't rot in um, in saltwater. Um, and then in addition, um, mangroves have been shown to really store large amounts of carbon, um, so they store a lot in their trees and above ground but then they also store huge amounts of carbon in their soil and below ground. And that has to do with the fact that they're wetland. So they're like a bog or a peat swamp where essentially what happens is we have dead trees fall over and you have a lot of, um, you know, organic material leaves or sediment or anything. It all gets caught in the mangroves and it becomes this really dense carbon rich soil. And because there's always some water on top of it, it essentially, doesn't decompose. It essentially just gets stored there um, for many different reasons, and that adds to it having a really high carbon stock per unit area. So if you compare, you know, one hectare or one football field's worth of uh, mangrove, if you compare that to a tropical forest, um, it will have more just because it has so much carbon below ground. Um, in the soil and that's really and that soil can be really really deep you know it can be one meter deep in some areas it might be five meters deep so you're just like multiplying it by five
0: wow thank you Lola what a great question Flavia science communication plays an important role in everything that you do Lola so could you tell us more about how you actively try to incorporate this into your daily work
4: um because I'm not a professor I don't interact that much with um you know, students or uh, on a daily basis, let's say like that. But I really think that it's so important to continue to train people and, you know, also um, to have more people maybe who are like me or maybe who are not like me, um, who can bring their own perspective to our science, right? Um, And also develop new applications and technologies and just have the opportunity. So I really like to um, have interns, I bring on interns, Try to host visiting scientists uh, from different institutions. Especially if I'm working on a project that's focused on a certain country, I want to make sure that there are people from the country or the region that are also involved in the work, so you know that they can have um, take ownership on it, and that could it could also be continued to be uh, you know ongoing work in in these um, on those types of topics. So yeah, primarily what I do, I I Give a lot of presentations and talks, um, sometimes podcasts and videos, <laughs> um, and then um, yeah so I try to host you know interns and students um, and scientists as much as I can.
0: And this is so important. It's so important that. Um your voice is heard and that you are visible and that they see you and that they know that, you know, there are, there are other careers other than just becoming a professor in this field and everything that uh, an EO scientist does, uh, is important. And these are the different ranges of things that we can be involved in. Yeah. Staying on the topic of science communication, a couple of months ago, I remember seeing a tweet about, um, your mangrove dataset being featured on a game, I believe it was Minecraft.
4: Yes, I had really the, the kind of the honor of being featured in a, a video and it's what they call an impact campaign that was that was carried out by Minecraft where they actually added a mangrove ecosystem into the game. Um and then they had a um yeah, a mangrove ecosystem where you go and you can plant your mangrove and it can grow. Um and my kids play Minecraft, so I said yes, you know, definitely. <laughs> Cool interested in this <laughs> um and there was a um yeah so you know as part of the of the game they also did a uh, an impact video kind of uh that that was on youtube showing you know the importance of mangroves why they're important you know what is a mangrove and you know um what people can do to to help and and trying to protect and, and restore those systems
0: we're gonna definitely put the link
1: yeah, I think it, it's super interesting to see how how you bring science to communication like to people who don't work in the field. And this reminds me of like um that that the, a lot of things going around carbon credits, markets, and so on. and there there's a lot of talk about uh, about this topic right now. And how do you think uh, remote sensing, for example, can support? Uh, the new digital MRV in being more transparency, in being more um, verified um, and with higher accuracy. How we can develop like a better, let's say, digital MRV in the in the context of, for example, carbon offsets and so on. How this technology can be well communicated to people who don't work with remote sensing, so reaching more like educa- in, in an education matter, for example, for kids and young adults. And, but also, can how can we implement this kind of technology in a, such a new market? Let's say new because maybe not so old, like 50 years, mm-hmm. but uh, in a new market of uh, carbon, for example.
4: Yeah. No, I think it's really crucial um, to have EO in, in these, um, kind of schemes. I don't, I don't see how it, it can be done without having Earth observation. And I think, you know, right now we're kind of going through the growing pains of trying to figure out what's the best way to do it, who should be doing it, um, you know, what are the right applications for it? Um, like you said, it's still a really new field. Um, and so, I think you know. Oftentimes, people have kind of the approach of like all or nothing, where it's like either it's we only do one, or you don't do it at all. Like it doesn't work at all, therefore we shouldn't do it, or you know this is the best, so you should only do that. Um, and it seems to me like we're in that in that time period where we need to do a little bit of everything. You know, we need both. We definitely need the EO, and there also need to be all of the other types of. Um, verification protocols that are um, that are kind of standardized. And it's it's something, you know, based on what's happening now, you can tell that there are still many, many questions that need to be addressed and answered. And I think it's good that at least it's not at the forefront and there will be more work being done on this so that it gets done properly.
1: Yeah, that's very important. And just one last question related to that. Um, I know that you have been in contact to local communities when you were collecting your data. Um, have you been touched with then in the context of payment ecosystem service? Have you seen like the beneficial part of uh, social economical beneficial part of these carbon markets that nowadays sometimes are a little bit misunderstood in that sense?
4: So I think what I've seen is like a really big growing interest from people and institutions who were not necessarily involved or interested previously and for me this is really encouraging because you know i i think that i originally come from you know a country in whatever you want to call it global south or you know a developing country and Oftentimes, you know, some of these, the questions of, of climate change and the effect of it were, you know, kind of not necessarily in, uh, ignored, but it wasn't necessarily like, it's not, a, it wasn't always a priority, right? And I think that now that there's, um, now there are like opportunities and there's obviously, you know, there, we, we can now tell that there is so much happening and who is going to be the most affected by um these changes. And I I just to me it also seems like there's been like more empowerment and engagement from, you know, those people who are the most affected. And hopefully there are also some ways to, you know, be able to kind of combat these effects that we're seeing where it's, you know, where everyone is kind of participating.
0: Such great points, Lola and Flavia. Um, it's so important to have this conversation. Um, looking at the time, uh, we're now down to the last couple of questions, uh, in this interview segment. Um, so Lola, um, as a black woman in STEM, what are the challenges you may- might have faced along the way and what advice would you give the next generation of women and women of color or people of color in this field?
4: Yeah. Um, that is a very good question. Um, I think one of the main challenges for me as I think back was, you know, dealing with maybe people who don't believe in you or who don't believe you when you tell them who you are and what you're doing. Um, And then the effect that it has on you yourself. So essentially what I mean is having imposter syndrome where, you know, you might think, oh, I don't belong here. They're gonna find me out i don't actually know what i'm doing um you know i'm they only hired me because xyz which you know i've had people say to me and not necessarily and actually not people at my work like my my colleagues are actually they're great like nobody has ever said that to me but people outside of work would say that you know like sometimes even friends or family where they're like oh well they they only hire you because you're Because you're black, right? It's like affirmative action. They had to, and so in my head, I was, you know, you you, even if you don't believe it and you know that's not what happened, you know, it gets to you. And so I think that was that was for a long time a really big challenge. Um, And you know, I think one of the 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 ways that I kind of got over it was that I kept working, (laughs) I think, and then also realizing you know, what I had actually accomplished. Um, and then when you do get awards or you do get praise from your colleagues or you are able to, you know, you do get that grant funded, it's, it's, it's like really um, empowering. And one thing that really actually helped me, maybe this is some advice that could be useful, is to actually write down all the things that I did actually do. And not just think about the things that are in my head that I, you know, telling me what I don't know, but actually writing down what I did do. Um, And then I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, I did do a lot of, I do know what I'm talking about. I did (laughs) do a lot of things. Um, So that would be, that would be some advice. Um, And also, you know, if you're early career, maybe you have not done so many things yet. Um, And I think there, one one thing that took me a really long time to realize was that um, nobody or most people don't necessarily know what they're doing, you know, um, especially when you're early career and you're always compa- comparing yourself to like, your colleague or the other student, grad student or something like that. And if you see their presentation, you have no idea. You don't understand what they're doing. And therefore you think they must be smart and I must not be so smart because I don't understand. I have no idea what this is and what they're doing. And then I realized, well, if I spent as much time as they do thinking about this particular problem, I also would know exactly what he knows, or I would be able to do this as well. Um, So you know, I guess being a little bit kind to yourself and believing in yourself. And, you know, don't compare yourself to other people, especially if it's not um, like equal, like you might be comparing yourself to someone who has a completely different life and background. Um, And when you're in research or a scientist, you're always reading and learning new things and just being willing to continue learning and improving yourself, I think is useful. Yeah, Brilliant. don't believe the haters. <laughs> don't let really them get to advice. you.
0: Do you think the uh, EO community or uh, EO world has changed since you began? and Or do you still see the same challenges, you know, coming up every so often?
4: Um, I think it has changed a lot. When I go to conferences, the makeup of the population is Completely different, you know, in many ways it's still similar, but yeah. I think it's, it's it has changed when I look at you know students and um younger researchers, it's definitely more diverse, which is you know, I think really mm. great and useful. It's um, it's encouraging for sure,
1: yeah, definitely. We still have a way to go, but it's uh. Yeah, it's good to see your your perspective and that things are getting better step by step. And with everything, conferences, now podcasts and Mm -hmm. industry, job positions, leadership positions, and so on.
4: Absolutely.
1: And this is
0: also why we need to hear diverse voices, right? Because you don't know where you will really find inspiration.
4: Absolutely. And, <laughs> and everyone's perspective is so important because you bring something different. It took me a really long time to understand this yeah. and why. And then I said, oh, because I've, you know, lived in different places or, you know, I I come, I, I see things differently or I think about things differently. This is actually good because then I might see an application for this data set that you, you have exactly. no idea about. You don't know, because how would you know? Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. and I have this very similarly have, you know, you you see problems or questions or applications or or needs that I completely don't understand. So, yeah, you need a little bit of everybody.
0: <laughs> okay, so we usually end our podcast with a bunch of rapid fire questions. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. Active or passive? Sensors?
4: Active.
0: LIDAR or SAR? Both. Google Earth Engine or Python?
4: I'm a Google Earth Engine user.
0: Just from the team. Very nice. Do you have a role model in geosciences or in EO? Somebody that uh, you've always looked up to or someone who inspires you? Well, I think
4: not as an EO, I would say, you know, all the all of the women who came before me and kind of made it possible because it was really hard for them. Um, you know, I talked with some of them and Nobody ever asked me to go get coffee for anybody, right? So yes, hats off to all of those women. And I think in science in general, the people that I look up to are Jane Goodall and Jacques Cousteau. Those were my inspirations as, as a child.
0: Nice. And your mother. So what advice would you like to give the next young generation? Hmm,
4: that's a that's a hard one. I've oh, always got lots of advice to people. they're. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think, you know, well, one thing is that, you know, keep trying, just because you fail doesn't mean that you are not made to do it. I when I was in school, I did not do well in all of the math and science classes. And yet here I am working for NASA. So, you know, if you, if you are really uh, passionate and you like something, just keep trying.
0: And I really want to know your secret. How do you manage everything while being a mother? How do you manage to be a woman in STEM, a mother in STEM and be so amazing and inspiring? Oh, thank you. Um, I don't know. Do I manage? <laughs> it, takes a, <laughs> it takes a lot of people.
4: I have a lot of help. Um, yeah, I have a lot of of, of, of help and i had a lot of help and, and a really supportive actually work environment also with a lot of flexibility otherwise it's really it's really tough
0: tell me you know, about like
4: it I, i'm not doing it alone there's no there is no question you know i have i have a, a my mom comes my husband i have a nanny my friends you know and my work is quite flexible. So otherwise it wouldn't be possible. The best advice that I ever got as, I think, as a woman, you know, working with children um, was was from a more senior scientist. And she said, don't forget that your career is long and your children will only be young once. And so she said that, she said, your career is long. My career, when when I, she had five children. When my children were small, She had the very young, like in grad school or something. So when my kids were were young, I couldn't go, you know, on the field campaign to Australia or to the conference that's in Europe or do all these trips. I missed out on so many things. And then by the time my kids were older, um, you know, I could start participating more in these things at work. And then she said, you know, by the time I was 50, all of my children were off at college. And that's really what my career began and when you're 50 you still have 15 years of career ahead of you that's a long time so yeah that's that to me that was like such good advice She you said your career is long you can't do it all now that's okay you know you will have that time will come later and so it was just allowed me to kind of be like you know take the pressure off of myself and like, you know what, okay, I, I right now I have to focus on my kids. They're small. I'm not going to be able to write those amazing papers and all those amazing grants. But the opportunities will hopefully be there still in the future when I might have more time and it will, it will be easier.
0: That's really a different perspective. Yeah, that's really nice. Good advice, yeah thank you and And also uh, for
1: for the ones Lola who wants to or don't want to become a mother one of the reasons is that right Korea and yeah so very good advice
0: yeah well thank you Lola for being here And for taking time out to talk to us and tell us all about all the wonderful things you're doing and have done. And you're an inspiration. We really, I mean, I speak for both Flavia and I, we love talking to you. We could talk to you for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I could stay here. I don't want to go back to work. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Very happy to get Get to know more about your career, Lola. Really, when Gopika says you're an inspiration, because you are really an inspiration for many of us, senior, middle, or like initial <laughs> careers. So, yes, it's just wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. and And I'm sure this talk, like, as a Last episode will open the eyes of so many people, inspire so <laughs> many people. Oh, thank sure you.
0: It's for everyone, really, Lola. Like when we featured you as a star star, we were like, Whoa! And then when I met you, I can't forget this. I met you very briefly at Living Planet Symposium, but yeah. you you left such a big impression on me. It's, it's amazing. Well, thank you. <laughs> just made my day (laughs) thank you that was a great panel you had
4: at living planet i yeah it was i was like oh my gosh these women are amazing i'm so happy oh it's gonna be so much better for all the women who are like coming after me
1: that was such a fantastic interview with dr lola I really like it to learn more about how she's using this multi sensor and passive optical and lidar and also fusion algorithms to tackle a very important topic in our field nowadays forest carbon. So, I had a lot
2: of fun. I learned so much how awesome to have Lola in our um center this season and I I I've been honored to see Lola speak in person at 4 in 2018, and it's just so exciting to see what her team is up to every year.
1: Speaking of learning more, for today's episode, we would like to share an article from EO Hub entitled, ESA releases multi-year biomass maps to keep tabs on climate change, by author Ishvina Singhs. In the article, you can learn more about the Biomass Maps that is a release from the years 2010, 17, and 18. Be sure to check out this post and the large EO Hub series when you get a chance. And thanks again, Jill,
2: Handsomeness, and Up42 for supporting this season. Awesome. So with that, we've reached the end of season 13 of Seen From Above been a really amazing six months filled with wonderful conversations with awesome scientists from around the world. We've learned so much from each of the women that we interviewed and loved hearing the latest and greatest news each month from Rafaela. So be sure to stay tuned for what comes next. We'll do a recap episode this summer um, for this season and we'll think forward about our next season. Um, so thanks ladies. It was so awesome to work with you for season 13. I also really love to be with both of you
1: in every episode. So it was super nice, ladies. I mean, apart from our personal contact, it's always a pleasure to share this stage, professional stage, with all of you and learn much more about what you are always offering, which is amazing.
2: I completely agree. <laughs> You've already said everything,
0: but all I can add to this is that uh, the season showed me a whole new world the world of podcasts. And um, I learned a lot. We all, I think, learned a lot about uh, how to make these episodes and how to organize them and everything. It takes a lot of effort to make it really well. And um, we, were, we were extremely passionate about what we do. And we tried to bring that into the season and we put a lot of heart and effort into it. And uh, it's been a great journey with you all. I've enjoyed meeting every single one of our speakers uh, and listening to all of them. And uh, I guess the stories that we've shared in this season will be a part of my life all the way through.
2: It is cool how like the stories, hearing stories directly from the women, hearing their experiences, like it's like this intensive experience together to like, I just remember the first interview we did with, with Karen and it was like, whoa, you know, forty minutes went by in a blink of an eye, and we learned so much that, like maybe you would learn at a conference, but I don't think so. So it's it's really cool to see this format of of storytelling
1: absolutely. And also opening to other language, for example, what we have done in the episode five, if I'm not wrong, with the Portuguese language speaking to amazing specialists in the Amazon biome. So, that is super
0: great at the end of it we have done this in our what whatever is left of our free time Mm -hmm. and uh, we've tried to do it so that more people in our field more underrepresented people are made visible and their voices reach more people
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the point also we have so many podcasts in our field but uh but I think this is pretty different, you know, because when you listen to three, two women hosting a podcast, and when when you listen to people from the Asia continent, African continent, South America, it has a different impact because you are listening from local scientists, which have who have the local knowledge. And you can see yourself there, right? So when you listen to, I don't know, when I listen to a Brazilian woman, a good leader, I see myself there I can kind of uh I can have something somewhere to to make my path make my way right it's not so far for me so I think that's very important is like this representation within our podcast we have seen like so many podcasts emerging now like one two three Mm -hmm. months ago um but I think this is a very special podcast because, as you said, we bring so many different topics with the latest technology, and all of them made by underrepresented scientists.
2: You're absolutely right. Thank you, Flavia. It's, it's awesome. There's a completely different feel. We're coming at this from as scientists. We're coming at this with very different life experiences. And um, it was really nice to be able to
3: share that with people.
0: So, Rafaela, it is the last episode of season 13, so would you like to say something to our listeners?
3: First of all, thanks to our listeners for being here with us in this different season. I hope you all enjoyed this journey as much as us. And thank you, ladies and sisters, for trusting me and trust that I was able to do this in a good way. Thanks for having me, always with a big smile on your beautiful faces, and changing my day with so much positive energy. You all are inspiring, and I am saying this for a reason. I am saying this because I was inspired by all of you when I started to use social media to update myself about remote sensing and Earth observation. You were already there. You were there with so much power, enthusiasm, kindness and knowledge i learned a lot from you i am still learning from all of you and i am grateful for being a part of it now and i hope we continue together in order to make science more accessible kind and equal thank you so much to all the ladies of Landsat and sister of sar members morgan thank you so much gopika Dani Watt. Flávia, muito obrigada. See you, girls.
0: Oh, Rafaela, thank you so much for all these kind words, and thank you for taking time out in your free time to provide our listeners with all of this fantastic news. You're amazing. On that note, let's wrap up the last episode of Season 13.
2: Okay, so this episode was led and coordinated by me, Dr. Gupika Suresh. Dr. Morgan Crowley, and Dr. Flavia de Souza-Mendez, with news contributions from Rafaela Tiengo and audio editing by Dr. Gopika Suresh.
1: And remember, we are humans first, and earth observation science is what we do. Be kind, be empathetic, and be creative. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.
2: <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to Season 13, Episode 6 of the Scene From Above podcast, which aims to showcase the latest...